Let me pray and then we'll get into the word. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. Uh, the fact that we can be here, even in the midst of all the craziness going on in the world. Uh, Lord, our prayer is that you will speak to us. It would not be my words. It would not be anybody else's words, but that you will please prepare our hearts so that we are in a place where we can truly uh, receive from you. And so that when we leave here today, we leave with this renewed sense of your love for us, of your mercy, of your goodness towards us, God. Uh, we, we pray, God, you will grant us the humility to hear your words, God. And may your name alone be glorified, Father, in all of this. And peradventure I say things that are wrong or misapply things. I am praying that through your Holy Spirit you will correct those things in our hearts. And you will continually just keep our minds and our hearts open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, so today we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 from verses 1 to 10. And the title of the sermon is Treasuring Our Faith. Uh, what I expect to happen as we go through this is that you will come to see uh, uh, that title being espoused in the words that we share today. So I guess before I start, I do want to offer two reminders that we must always keep in mind. Uh, one is that I always feel whenever I have the opportunity to teach, um, it is important to, to express that I am as much a sinner as everybody else, right? I am as much on this journey as you all are on. Uh, being here to be able to speak is in some kind of affirmation that I know more um, or I am further along the journey, but simply a way to, to share uh, what God, what I believe God is saying. And with that, I am reminded to sometimes introduce myself that I am totally a recovering sinner <laughs> because it helps me be humble, right? It, it, it keeps my mind in the right place so that I know this journey I am on. The, the, the second reminder I would like to offer is just due to the state of the world around us right now, right? Just the uncertainty that we are all en engrossed in. So the reminder I want to offer is the transient nature of life. Right, the, the world has changed. A year ago, we were all probably having vacation plans, things we wanted to do, but, but the world has completely just flipped, right? And as much as things are uncertain, there are certain things, though, that are quite certain. Forgive me, no point intended. As much as we live in uncertain times, certain things can be held onto as being true and unchanging. Uh, one of it would be uh, the fact that God is sovereign, right? All of this isn't somehow unsettling God, right? And another point would, for us Christians especially to look at is that the sacrifice of Christ is true, right? The pandemic hasn't somehow rolled away the sacrifice of Christ and we can always depend on that hope we have in him, right? This pandemic is teaching me over and over the utter futility of life apart from God. Right, it is sort of teaching me uh, the meaninglessness, really, of pursuing after certain things apart from God. Right, I am seeing more of my own brokenness, and again, just with how many people have passed, you, you get this renewed sense of the transient nature of life. I say all of that as way of introduction, just as a reminder to prepare our hearts. Right, um, so we're in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two. 
Um, I've been sort of walking through Ephesians whenever I get the chance to teach, so I want to do a quick recap. As opposed to many of Paul's letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus, which is really a bunch of churches in southeastern, I think southeastern or southwestern Asian minor, uh, is a letter that did not come as a response to questions or as a response to a previous letter, right? It was basically a way of Paul laying out his theology of life. It was almost like sharing his own thoughts of life in Christ. So if you look at chapter 1 from verses 3 to 14, Paul goes into this long burst of praise, just highlighting the goodness, the sovereignty of God, highlighting certain blessings that should always anchor us in Christ, right? And one of the things I want you to see in there that God is the primary actor and the one that takes the initiative in our lives, right? It is always important to hold on to that because it helps keeps us at rest. It helps us understand that we are not in control and quite frankly, we don't want to be in control. From then on, Paul sort of moves to the latter chapter of latter part, sorry, of chapter one. He goes into this prayer for the churches, right? And he prays that the that their hearts be enlightened, that they might come to know three things. Uh, one is the hope to which they are called. Two is the uh, the inheritance, the glorious inheritance uh, that God has in us, the saints. And three being this great and immeasurable power that God has walk toward us would believe in him now i highlight that because again it's it's important to take note of of all the things paul could pray for he prays for those things right which which i believe the things we pray for uh, have a way of expressing our hearts or showing where we are right but i want to quickly double click on that particular that last one in verse 19 where he talks about this great and immeasurable power that he has made available to us right that is sort of like a thesis. The rest of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, is like exhibit A, talking about this great and immeasurable power. So it's an exhibit showing that power being leveraged and raising Christ from the dead. Right? And I want to point out to a couple of things. Let me quickly read that part. So let me start from verse 20. He's talking about this great and immeasurable power. Verse 20. That he walked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One of the things I want you to see from there, when you look at that, is you look at that power being at work in raising Christ from the dead, right? The miracle of resurrection. You look at Christ being seated on the right hand of God, uh, this place of highest honors or favors before God. You see that he is far above all principalities, all rule, all authority, all names in this age, in the one to come. Right? He is the head of the church. And, and, and what I'm trying to show here is that you get a grasp of this power that God has available to us. Because our passage today, Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10, is the second exhibit of that power. So the first exhibit of that power is in raising Christ Jesus from the dead. The second exhibit of that power is in raising us up from the deadness of our sinfulness and making us alive together in Christ. That's the passage we're going to focus on today. So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. Let me read that and then we'll jump into it. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he, has, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I'm going to organize my thoughts around three headings uh, today. Uh, one being our depravity, two being our redemption, and three being our way of life. And then I'll draw out some applications, some as we go, and then I'll also wrap up with some applications at the end of it. So, so let me first start with our depravity, right, verses 1 to 3. Right. In this section, I will primarily speak of either our lives before we were in Christ or what our current life is if we are not in Christ, meaning if we do not believe in him. Right. So, so the only appropriate way to describe our condition apart from Christ is that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. You could almost see Paul end what we call chapter 1 with this high note, right, and then Chapter 2 starts out with this idea of that. And you are dead in your sins and trespasses. Right? So he, he basically summarizes our state as that. It is to remind us that without Christ, we have no realization, no, no ability, no capacity to begin to understand God or engage with him. Right? You see, we're not only dead in our sins, right? It, it's that we live life according to a specific agenda, right? An agenda of someone we would call the enemy of our soul, right? The Satan, the accuser. You see that in verse 2, right? Let me read from verse 1 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right, so we live, we are not only dead in our sins, we are living life in accordance to a, with an agenda set forth by our enemy. Right? And, and one thing I should say here is that what the enemy is primarily after isn't your job or your career or even your marriage. Right? What he's primarily after is your relationship with God. Now, he might use all of those other things to get at that. Right? But when, when, what the enemy is primarily after is our relationship with God. And so you see that the way of this world, right? if you go back to verse 2, is designed in such a way to keep us apart from God, 
to keep us living a life where we are not truly submitted to God. It is a way that is masked as uh, self-esteem, where you are the master of your own faith, right? The captain of what happens to you. And so the question we should be asking ourselves is, who is truly directing the course of my life? Because even though we are in Christ, if you are like me, right, you, you know that you struggle with the same sins. You know that you struggle with still following after the ways of this world, right, and the system it espouses. And so that's a question we should be asking ourselves. Even though we are in Christ, who is directing my life? Right? Is Christ truly uh, Lord and Master of my life? Right? This shows up in the things I'm pursuing, security, stability, whatever it may be. Right? Sometimes it shows up in how we spend our time, our resources. Right? And, and so it's a reminder for us that yes, if we are, if we are in Christ, if we believe in Him, right? verse 1 to 3 is our prior state. But again, we know we struggle with some of those things. And it behooves us to always examine ourselves to see if we are of the faith, to see where we are. In, in verse 3, I want you to note that Paul switches from uh, the first, he switches from the second person pronoun to the first person. So he's being inclusive, right? Verse 3 says, among whom we all once lived. I, I, I take this to, I think then is obviously since probably most of the, churches or the church in Ephesus that is writing to uh, a Gentiles and he being a Jew, right, he is making sure that they understand that this is inclusive of everyone, right, and the application to us today, of course, is that it doesn't matter how much you've been in Christ, we must always be checking our hearts and checking where we are in terms of treasuring this faith. And what I want to take from verse 3, where he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I, I want you to see that apart from Christ, we tend to live our lives in submission to our desires. Right? Our desires tend to then control and dictate the course of our lives. Which should not be so. Now, don't hear me say desires are bad. They're not. Desires are legitimate cravings that are actually important for life. Right? If we have no desires, you don't know that a baby needs food. Right? The way the baby expresses that is to cry. Right? It's trying to express a desire. Right? So desires are legitimate. What is problematic is when they get twisted. Right? When they get distorted, which again is the way of this world. Which is exactly what Paul is hitting at in verse 3. And that by doing these things, right, we, we become the types of people that, that chase after our desires so much. And what they always lead to is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes would say. Vanity upon vanity. All is vanity. Right? That word vanity, uh, if you want to maybe bring it to our day, you could sort of represent it by this phrase of, shrouded emptiness right it seems like there's something there right but it's really empty right the end of it is always emptiness right and, and so that again is a caution for us to be examining ourselves and seeing where we are sometimes you look at life like for example this pandemic and there is this thought that if god is a good god why is all of this happening Right. There is that thought that 
and implicit underneath that question is this idea that there are some individuals, maybe ourselves, that are deserving of something else apart from wrath, apart from the judgment of God. Right? And, and that's why, again, I love what Paul says in verse 3, especially at the end of it. Let me read that verse again. It says, among whom we all once lived. Right? If we're in Christ, sure, we're not living according to that again, hopefully. But if we're not in Christ, we live according to that. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So when we ask that question, if there is a good God, why do I suffer? Why do people suffer? There is an assumption that there are certain folks that are deserving of something else other than judgment before God. The problem with that is that it's not true. The, the question we should be asking, the question I should be asking, is how on earth does a holy and righteous God, the judge of all, who knows my sins and knows the things I did even yesterday, last week, last month, there were sins, even this morning. How on earth does that holy and righteous judge of all doesn't destroy me? Why am I still here taking breath? Really, why am I stealing from his air? Because that's what I'm doing, right? I'm breathing in air. It's not really mine. See, that's the right way to ask that question. Because then it humbles you. Right? Because then it helps you understand the true nature of man. Now, now again, from verse 1 to 3, I'm just trying to paint this need we have for God. I'm trying to help us see that truly we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. If we are in Christ, thanks be to God for that. Right? We have a different end we are going through. Sure, we still struggle. Right, but thanks be to God. If we are not in Christ, this is a sad summary of our lives. Right, that this is how we live. Being run amok by our desires. Right, so that being said, let me go on to the, the next question. Because the next observation, sorry. Because as we come to understand our depravity, then the, the, the next question that bubbles up to us is, okay, what is the solution? And that comes in verses 4 to 9. Uh, if, if we're truly seeing the hopelessness of our state, then we understand the weight of the next set of verses. Let, let me read from verse 4 to 7. But God, but God, that, that one phrase changes everything. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let me pull out a couple of things from those verses. Again, I want you to see that God is the primary actor. He is the one that initiates this transaction, this two-way communication between us and himself that we call worship. Right? God is always the one initiating, pushing after us. That's why you see verse 4 says, but God. The second thing I want you to see is that this is not based on our merit. Right? There is nothing there that said, look, God is act together. And then God responded. Right? There is nothing there that says Tolu was you know, such a good person. 
And then God responded, no, God acted while we were dead in our trespasses. Paul repeats that statement, right? Verses 2, verses, I think, verse 5, he repeats that. I, I hope you're seeing the heart of God in all of this, right? How much you matter to God. That regardless of where you are, his heart for you is always to bring you into reconciliation with him. By, by highlighting that none of this is due to our merit, what I'm hoping you see is that your sins are no match for the mercies of God. I'm hoping you see that you do matter to God. Right? I'm, I'm hoping you see that his heart towards us is always this reconciliation, bringing us back to himself. You see, the mercy and love described in verse 4 Again, it's not a result of what we did. It is, it is an expression of who God is. Right. So furthermore, I want you to see how God guarantees our end and destiny, where we are in Him. Because I want you to see that it's not going to be by your strength or by your labor or by you getting your act together even after you've come to believe in Him. But that God is the one that carries you through. Let me quickly read verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He, God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then this is where I'm going, verse 6, for you to see your end. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is how God sees us. This is how the story ends. We are in Christ. We are seated with Him. Yes, we still struggle because the fullness of the consummation of all things hasn't come yet. And so we still struggle in this in-between place, but that's where we're going. And again, that is not based on our merit. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to espouse uh, the principles of prosperity gospel that talks about you're seated with Christ, so therefore you don't face any issues in life. No, that's not true. What I am trying to say is that that is where we are going to, where there will be the when there is the fullness of consummation of all things. Right, uh, verse 7 sort of shows the purpose of what God uh, has done for us so far, right? Which is he wants to highlight in the coming ages, he wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's heart for the church is that the church be this exhibition, this expression of the goodness and the greatness of God. Right, through our brokenness, through our issues, through our sins. That we are always pointing to him, the one who redeems all things. And right from there, Paul segues into verse 8, which is probably one of the most popular sayings from Paul's letters. Right, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's that particular phrase, which I know for most of the time we, we recite as a way of be reminding ourselves of, of, our, of our relationship with God. It, it really is an exhibition, an expression of the character of God. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your undoing, it is the gift of God. Not a, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Uh, grace is, uh, is something we all run into, and I just want to use two quick um, illustrations to express it. 
we've often heard that grace is unmerited favor. And that is true. But I want to take it a little bit further. Uh, grace is demerited favor. Uh, grace is God coming to help you do what you cannot do by your own self. Grace is God offering himself to you. So let me use two examples. When we say grace is unmerited favor, uh, that would be like you adopting a child into your family, right? A child that isn't yours, adopting that child into your family, right? You could say the child doesn't merit that and you're bringing the child into your family to inherit all that your family represents. But when we say, when I say grace is demerited favor, what I'm trying to paint is, is that God is offering us, offering unto us something we don't even deserve. Right, in the sense that we deserve the opposite. So let me give an example. When we say grace is demerited favor, a good example is saying you go to death row, right? The most hardened criminals, and you pick someone from there, you adopt them into your family, right? Without repentance. They're dead in their sin, right? But in exchange, you take your beloved son, right? And you put that person on death row to die for the one you just rescued from death row. Right? Grace is demerited favor. Right, Faith, when it talks about you are saved, uh, you, you are saved, you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith there isn't just a mental assent, it's the means by which we receive this gift of salvation. It, it, it means it is our response to God's offer of salvation. See, faith means to believe God, which implies we abandon every other way in which we try to save ourselves and we truly hope in him right uh, 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 f faith isn't something we conjure up by our strength we don't grit our teeth and somehow produce faith right uh, uh, one commentator puts it this way to say i have faith does not so much say anything about me or myself rather it says god is a trustworthy god Right? Faith is the way by which we receive this offer of salvation from God. Why is faith the way we receive this offer of salvation from God? Because we are dead in our sins. Right? We, we have no merit by which we can say, I deserve this salvation. So if God is going to give us this immeasurable gift, the way we receive that gift is to actually believe in him. Right, so faith in this passage isn't some meritorious thing God sees in your heart and then he responds to that. No. Right. Faith itself is a gift. Right. So since salvation by grace through faith is a gift and not our own works, what it should bring out in us is this humility. Right. We should always have this posture of bowing in adoration to God. Let me point out three things that helps me when I look at passages like this, helps me see just the, forgive my phrasing, the absurdity of God's love. Right, three things. One, what is the object of God's love in this passage and similar passages in scripture? Me and you, dead sinners. Right, the object of his love is me and you while we were dead in our sins. Sinners. Two, the price of his love. To sacrifice his own beloved son for us. 
dead sinners. Three, the timing of his love. While we were yet dead in our sins, Christ Jesus died for us. So the object of his love, the price of his love, and the timing of his love, those things help blow me away. And it reminds me that truly there is no room to boast. Let me go to my third observation. What then should be our way of life? Because again, Paul is setting up something here, right? If you go back to Ephesians 1 towards the end, it talks about this, the, the measurable great power of God that is at work toward us. He gives an initial exhibit in raising Christ Jesus from the dead and setting him on the right hand side of God. Exhibit 2 would be Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, which is God raising us up from the deadness of our sins. right? And he's basically highlighting all of this and we come to verse 10 where Paul is concluding this exhibition of God's power. So let me read verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, let me draw out a couple observations. Again, God is the primary actor in your life. The one that initiates this reconciliation between you and him. The one that is always pulling you to himself. The one that is always carrying you through life to that end, which is union with Christ. God is the primary actor. Therefore, we have no room to boast. And if we know that God is the primary actor, we should be a little bit more rested in him. Right? Because we know that we are a result of his activities. We are a result of the activity of God. Not only this, we see a picture of his providence. We are his workmanship. Right? Now, when I say you are his workmanship, you are his masterpiece and art of work that he has created. He's carrying you through life. He will carry you through life if you will put your trust in him. Now, don't read this scripture as saying you are great by yourself, in and of yourself. You're a bag, you know, you're just this amazing, wonderful person. You're all that and a bag of chips. No. We are recovering sinners on a path to becoming Christ-like. What, what I am saying, though, is that you are an exhibition of his grace. If you go back to verse 7, right? You are exactly what he has in mind when he planned all of this before time, that you be united with Christ Jesus. You are an exhibition of his grace. You are his work of art, his poema. That, that's the word, workmanship, right? And because we are an exhibition of the immeasurable depth of his grace, what must come out of us is good works right for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them now let me be clear we are not saved by good works right i've been highlighting that god is the primary actor none of this is based on our merit we are not saved by good works but we are saved for good works that God himself will walk in us, not through the gritting of our teeth or the strength of our backs, 
but that God will work out those good works in and through us. Right? John Stott's word, words here are appropriate in him saying, good works are indispensable to salvation. Now hear this. Not as the grounds or the means for salvation, but as the consequence and the evidence of salvation. To be clear, this is not saying once we are in him, we are in him somehow we just become these amazing people. No. This is saying over time, as we are in him, as he walks in us, right, we cannot continue living consistently in sin without repentance, without remorse, and say that we are saved. It is not by a prayer we say. Right? It's not by being a member of the church. This is why Paul would often tell people in his letters, examine yourself if you be of the faith. Right? We are not saved by a prayer. The evidence of our salvation over time, over time, is that we become the kinds of people that love what God loves. We cannot continue consistently in sin over time without remorse, without repentance. Right? The, the good works that Christ, that God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, is not necessarily referring to particular things in your life or there's this particular thing. It could be inclusive of that, obviously. Uh, but what Paul has in mind here when he talks about those good works that God prepared beforehand is, is our way of life. He has in mind this course of our lives and what they should be, what, 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 the, what the tone or the tenor of our lives should be like. And then naturally you might ask this question, what are these good works? What are these things that uh, um, Paul is saying that God prepared beforehand? Uh, let me offer a couple suggestions. There's obviously more than the things I'll talk about, but they're just suggestions for us to think about. Right? I immediately, first of all, let me say, immediately following this particular scripture, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, if you go from verse 11 all the way downwards, right? Uh, Paul highlights the issue of divide between Jews and Gentiles and how God has brought everybody in reconciliation back to himself, right? For us, obviously, during this time, this applies to all the issues around race, politics, the elections, and all of that. And, and one thing I want to point to here is that let us take our cues from Scripture and from Christ on how we engage with one another, even if we disagree. Right? Let us take our cues from Christ. Right? So in light of all that I have touched on, let me highlight certain good works. And what I'm hoping you see is that these good works, again, it's not everything, but it's just some of them, they become a way by which you treasure this faith that God has done so much to offer you, where God is the primary actor in giving unto us this faith, where we are seeing that the object of his love is us, dead sinners, or at best, recovering sinners, right? Where we see the price he paid for this faith, the sacrifice of his only begotten and beloved son. And where we see the timing of his love, which he died for us while we were yet sinners. So let me touch on a couple good works that might help. One is gratitude. Right? I, I can't, there's not much else for me to say when you read this passage and understand the depth of it. That what should come out of us is gratitude. 
You see, as much as it is mind-blowing that God will die for me, that Christ will die for me. You see, what unravels me sometimes is that as much as I know he's done that, my continued sins don't prevent him from loving me. Quite, quite frankly, he has already foreseen the depths of my every sin and darkness. And yet, due to his love and mercy, he still wants me in his family. Right, so don't get me wrong. We shouldn't continue in sin without repentance and impunity, and we just don't care. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying even at best, with our best intentions, we still fall, and we still make mistakes. And yet, God, even seeing all of that because he's sovereign and he sees everything and knowing everything about my sins, both in the past, now, and in the future, still wants me and you in his family. The tone of our life should be that of gratitude to God. Right? Fellowship with the triune God is a privilege and an, and an opportunity that we truly don't understand. Fellowship with the triune God is truly something we don't understand. That a holy and righteous God will want us to fellowship with Him. I tend to get a, a good glimpse of that, as you might imagine, in the joylessness of my sins. When I get to see more of my depravity and the joylessness it brings forth, then I tend to appreciate more the sweetness of this fellowship with Christ and what it means. Of a truth, the way of a sinner is hard. No matter how much it is painted as fun, of a truth, it is just a hard way. The second good work that I want to highlight is that of humility. Out of this gratitude comes this imperfect, and I want you to note that word, out of this gratitude comes this imperfect realization of my brokenness. See, I am coming to see how much I truly need God's help. You see, although God has raised me from my sins to be united with Christ, I find myself like the children of Israel who have been delivered from bondage, longing to go back into that bondage. Which is crazy. How do you get delivered from bondage, but what you want to do is go right back into that? And that I see more and more in myself. I see my self-sufficiency exhibit itself where I want to be in control and I want to be Lord and Master of my life. And Revelations 3, 17 to 18 describes me. It paints an unfortunate portrait of all of our self-sufficiency. Let me read it quickly. Revelations 3, verse 17 to 18. Revelation, sorry. For you say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. I counsel you to buy from me, which is God, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. As if that is not bad enough. Right, I am coming to see how I wrap my identity around what people say about me, what I have accomplished, and what I am doing, what gives me significance. And so the more we come into realization of this things, the more our response is that of humility. And that helps in treasuring this faith that we have. 
thirdly, repentance. See, when Martin Luther, Martin Luther's first thesis reads thoughts, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be of repentance. Right, it's from this, what I just read, that you get the statement, all of life is repentance. See, re repentance is not meant to be this one-time inaugural event, and then you do, and then that's just it. Right, repentance is a posture of your heart and of your life and of your engagement with God. Repentance isn't just remorseful or feeling bad. It is actually a turning to God by the help of God. Right? There is no true walk, no true fellowship with the triune God without repentance being the posture of our lives. Unless, of course, you are perfect. Which you shouldn't be here if you are perfect. Right? But... If you're not perfect, which I'm assuming you're not, the posture of our lives has to be that of repentance in engaging God. See, if we're ever to grow in our faith, we must take repentance seriously. And repentance, again, is primarily a turning to God. It is a turning to God. It isn't necessarily coming up with a list of things, even though that's great. It is a turning to God, a reliance on God. And so a question I must ask you, is that in your relationship with God, how often does repentance feature in that? How consistently does repentance feature in your relationship with God? How often do you examine yourself to be if you are of the faith? How often do you reflect on the course of your life? It could be over a month, over the last six months, over the last year. And say, where am I going in life? How does this align with the values of God? How often do we check the norms by which we live by and compare that to scripture? Let me quickly run through the remaining good works I have. Uh, I have one more and then a final application. Uh, the, the last good work that I want to share. Again, remember, this is not inclusive of everything, right? But, but the last one I want to share is that of sharing our faith. Right? We cannot have been blessed with all of this. And then obviously, as God provides the opportunity, may we be courageous enough to take that step and share our faith. But I do want to note that in sharing our faith, please let us share what is accurate. See how Paul laid out this text? It starts out with us having a problem. We are dead in our sins. And then he talks about the rescuer, God. Right? So no matter how you want to share your faith, right, it has to involve those two things. Right? We, we must present the truth of our situation and of this faith that we have. And in doing that, we continue to treasure this faith that we are given. And again, it reminds us that this is by no merit of, of ours, right? And that should include what we're sharing, right? You do not come to faith in God by your own merit or your own power. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And all of that is a gift from God. Not of our own work so that no one may boast. And then lastly, what, what I want to touch on as a cap is that when we think about the fact that we are create, we are his workmanship, right? And let me go back and just read that verse, verse 10 again. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As much as I've listed certain good works, right? We talked about gratitude, humility, sharing our faith, repentance. Uh, what I really hope for is that we develop a way of life. A way of life whereby we are continually exposing our hearts to God. What I'm hoping for is that we develop a certain set of rhythms whereby we engage with God, where our hearts are open to God, where God does the transformation in us, right? Never by our own strength, right? I'm hoping that we come to see that we need these rhythms, whether it be daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, monthly rhythms, maybe things you do two times a year, maybe things you do yearly, whatever it may be, rhythms by which we continually engage with God. They become this checkpoint that helps you expose your heart to God. Very often, if I do not have daily rhythms of sitting with God, I do not see how I am turning into something I do not want to be. It is through those rhythms that God begins to expose my motivation for anger and why I acted a certain way earlier in the day or last week or whatever. Right. So I'm hoping we develop this way of life that we see that what God gets out of your life isn't your good looks or your career or your accomplishments or whatever else or your family what God get out of what God gets out of your life is who you are becoming what God what people get out of your life is who you are becoming I am hoping that we see that apprenticeship to Christ is truly the greatest opportunity and privilege we have and that we make good on that amen amen let's pray father thank you may we truly be people who take seriously apprenticeship to you may we be people who take seriously um, our relationship with you uh, may we be people who who are transformed, who become the, the kinds of folks that your, your good works truly shows in our hearts, that your good work shows in our lives. That we would be, people will be characterized by repentance, by gratitude, by humility, by sharing our faith. That we, we, we be people that truly have a way of life, whereby our hearts are always exposed to you, where we are growing in you and becoming more Christ-like. So that truly we be an exhibit of your immeasurable grace, the depth of your immeasurable grace and kindness towards us. Father, let your name be glorified. Please encourage our hearts, strengthen us, rebuke us where needed, Father. Let your name be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.